I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is Chivalry. Welcome to my first episode that isn't about a person or persons. I'm really excited to share a bit about chivalry, a topic I think is deeply important to the Hundred Years' War, the War of Breton's Succession, and the Wars of the Roses. I've actually really struggled with this episode. I've rewritten parts of it twice. It may be a bit shorter than character episodes, but it's given me a few ideas that you'll find out all about next year, and I'm really excited about them. To avoid just giving you a bunch of facts, I'm going to focus on a few specific knights and their stories, as well as stories written by chroniclers. I think covering this as part of the Hundred Years' War is the way to go. Despite chivalry being much older, this 100 plus years period of history leads to a lot of huge transitions. It begins moving monarchies away from feudalism. It allows the lower classes to begin participating in government, sometimes failing and with many setbacks. And it sees chivalry slowly fade, faced with the devastating setbacks of superior military tactics. I am incredibly grateful for the work of the late Maurice Keane. His book Chivalry literally wrote the book of the modern study of chivalry. This episode will be mostly focused on the French basis of chivalry, with a bit of the English and a few other European powers. As many of you know, my husband Philip helps proofread all of my episodes and has plenty of input when I'm discussing military topics, which is a personal interest of his. So this is the first episode he's actually gotten to help me with it in more detail. So as always, thank you, Philip. He also has hopefully gotten a lot of questions answered. Throughout this episode, I'll be trying to answer the question, was chivalry a real thing? By this question, I'm not trying to discover if there was a written rule book, so to speak, or even a codified ideal. I'm trying to find out if you asked a common knight, a man who had been knighted due to gallantry in action, not a noble-born man, would he know what was expected of him within the chivalric nature of the age? Would a woman who belonged to the landed gentry or a higher class know how she should be treated by a man who was a knight? And finally, what were the punishments for breaking these rules? Were they just social? Or could one actually be tried for being less than chivalric? 
The trouble with answering these questions comes down to sources in most cases. Sources, as I've discussed in countless other episodes, have biases, and some aren't reliable at various times due to changing patrons or anger towards certain individuals. I have no doubt a few of you will be hoping to hear a little bit about William Marshall, someone I have personally labeled the greatest knight. But I'll be saving him until I cover the early Plantagenets. Plus, there are plenty of other interesting knights and stories of knights to cover. As a former English as a second language teacher and a lover of languages, I think it's important to discuss etymology quickly. Because the word chivalry shares a root with a word I will struggle to pronounce throughout this entire episode. Cavalry. I did it right! I'm sure all of you have a word you struggle with too. It's totally normal. Both words originate with the Latin word cabalis, meaning horseman. Both words went through changes, of course, but you may hear the root of the word chevouche, since cabalis is also the root of the word cheval, meaning horse. Yes, they have different paths. The importance of the horse to this entire episode and social structure cannot be understated. If any of you own or ride horses today, you know they're expensive. Feeding them, having the time to care for them, training them, saddles and other accessories. And there's the cost of not doing other things. A trained war horse can't be used to plow a field. The time spent training that horse can't be used for agricultural production or trade or craftsmanship. Deciding to use horses has to provide a great deal of advantage to make it worth it to any ruler. A class of men, yes, it's men, doing the fighting can't be used for other things within a kingdom. And in addition, their focus will be on warfare. They will be raised from a young age to fight. So having ideals of conduct, if not outright rules, is suggested. To explain chivalry, I'm going to give you all a bit of a history lesson. Thankfully, this is a history podcast, so that's what you're here for. The use of horses in military conflict is ancient. It makes sense. Horses can run faster than humans and carry more weight. They can transport troops and supplies more easily than soldiers on foot. In addition, say, using a chariot and an archer or a spearman can attack while moving towards the enemy and then quickly retreat. A horseman could launch a light spear at the enemy or stab the same enemy with the spear from height all advantageous. But in the 8th century, something started to change. A piece of technology from the East impacted the way horses were used in battle. And with this change came a slow but important social change. Stirrups. A piece of metal attached to a saddle with leather allowing the rider more control while releasing their hands for other tasks morphed the way battles were fought. While a rider could still use a bridle, the bit that goes in a horse's mouth, to control a horse, stirrups allowed an extra layer of control and kept the rider more secure than just sitting on a saddle. Interesting historical note, there is a chance the metal stirrups were developed independently in the British Isles, based on earlier leather versions. It's important to note that there is a healthy debate within the scholarly research regarding stirrups literally called the Great Stirrup Controversy, 
one side led by the followers of historian Lynn Townsend White Jr. believe that stirrups basically led to feudalism. This is because the change in technology changed the way humans interact with their environment in such a way that it changed social structures. Followers of White's theories point to the printing press as another example of technology that changed social structures. The opposing sides, led by Peter Sawyer and R.H. Hilton, argue that technological determinism is an oversimplification of complex socio-political technological systems working together to shape the world around us. There is even a third side to this debate. Military historian Stephen Murillo argues that a lack of a centralized government is what gave rise to cavalry in the Middle Ages. I'll be taking up the view that the stirrup was very important to the development of medieval mounted knights and the knightly class, but that there were social causes as well, and that chivalry was part of this. Religion played a large part as well. It's important at this point to make it very clear that feudalism and chivalry are not the same. While chivalry played a role in feudalism, there are plenty of feudalist societies that never had chivalry. So, in the mid to late 11th century, a new type of tactic in cavalry was developed. Stirrups coming from the east in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries allowed soldiers on horses to carry heavy lances, making the horse, rider, and lance the weapon, instead of just the lance. However, this new tactic required extensive training. You try carrying a heavy lance while leading a galloping horse with no training. To facilitate this training, the wealthy began to hold tournaments to both give their people a chance to show skill and the chance to learn from others. This mingling of the warrior class from different locales likely led to another outcome. Remember, while there were state-level wars at this time, they were less common. Many wars were smaller, local level. A duke attacking a king, say due to a supposed swearing on relics, or counts fighting each other, perhaps due to trade disputes. It's likely that due to spending time at tournaments, most knights would know the people they were fighting against. It would be really odd killing someone you had gotten friendly with at a tournament. So why not hold him ransom? Think back to the Black Prince's episodes. His death was mourned in both England and France, publicly. Even during the Battle of Poitiers, John II had ordered that the Black Prince not be killed when the Oriflame, the French flag of no quarter, was raised. Of course knights would die in battle. That's the risk when you, your horse, and your lance are basically a ballistic weapon. But intentionally killing someone you knew when fighting is not an easy task emotionally. And if you think people didn't have emotions then, you're wrong. <laughs> now, new military tactics, feudalism, and military technology do not make a new social order. So what caused chivalry to arise in the 12th century? Another important component of chivalry was the knightly class. Knights are nothing new. The ancient Romans had knights. Their equestrian class was literally a knightly class. After the fall of Rome and the rise of the Carolingian Empire in the 8th century, knights were a less organized class. They were well-armed and equipped men who could fight on horseback. Fighting on horseback made these men true cavalry, 
not just mounted infantry. The emergence of the ceremony for knighting young men shows this group of men developing some of the signs of what we in the modern world consider chivalry. The word even began being used in written descriptions of knighting. The process of the ceremony is described in various sources. Gregory of Tours, a 6th century chronicler and Bishop of Tours, wrote of an earlier ceremony that included parts of what a 12th century knight would recognize in his ceremony, including a cheek kiss and the bestowing of a shoulder belt. Dr. Keane goes through a number of these in his book. He takes pains to point out that while the ceremony had religious aspects, there are no references to the church or churchmen participating in general knighting ceremonies. Obviously, the religious knightly orders are a different story, and I am not up for getting into those today. I particularly enjoyed two descriptions from Dr. Keene's book that share similarities. The first example was from Henry I's knighting of Geoffrey of Anjou prior to Geoffrey's marriage to Henry's daughter, the Empress Matilda. This took place in 1128 and is an example of a mass dubbing. While Geoffrey was the focus of the ceremony, the 30 young men who accompanied him were also knighted. The account shared by Dr. Keane is from John of Mamotier's work. From Dr. Keane's book, quote, The young man took a ritual bath, we are told. He was then dressed in a tunic of cloth of gold and purple, with a cloak, and was led before the king. Gold spurs were then affixed to his heels. A shield decorated with painted lions was hung about his neck, and a sword, said to have been forged by Wieland, was girded to him by the king. End quote. For those who are curious, the Wieland mentioned is Wayland the Smith, a legendary Germanic blacksmith. He is mentioned in Beowulf, if his name sounds familiar. The sword used by Charlemagne was also supposedly forged by Wayland. And after this message, you'll hear more. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The second example, set approximately 50 years later, from the poem Ordin des Chevaliers by an unknown author, describes a fictional but contemporaneous story about the knight Hugh, Count of Tiberius, sometimes called Hugh of Saint-Homme, a crusader knight who was captured by Saladin, the great Muslim general who defeated the European forces in Jerusalem. Saladin, I will be using his anglicized name, 
stated he would release the knight due to Hugh's great valor if Hugh would share the method of becoming a knight. From Dr. Keene's book, quote, First Hugh dressed Saladin's beard and hair, and then he brought him to a bath. This was a bath of courtesy and bounty, he said, and should recall to you the baptism of the child, for you must come out of it clean of sin as the infant from the font. Then he brought him to a fair bed to signify the repose of paradise, which is what every knight must strive to win by his chivalry. Raising him, he dressed him first in a white robe, signifying the cleanness of the body. Over that, he threw a scarlet cloak to remind him of the knight's duty to be ready to shed his blood at need in defense of God's church. Then he drew brown stockings, to remind him of the earth in which he must lie in the end, and to prepare in life for death. After that, he bound about Saladin's waist a belt of white, signifying virginity, and that he should hold back lust in his loins. Then came the gold spurs, to show that the knight must be as swift to follow God's commandments as the pricked charger. Last, he girdled him with the sword, whose two sharp edges are to remind the new knight that justice and loyalty must go together, and that it is the knight's task to defend the poor from the strong oppressor." End quote. Apparently, Hugh should have lightly slapped Saladin, but decided against it as his prisoner. There were also four commandments that a new knight must follow. Quote, he must not be consenting to any false judgment or be a party in any way to treason. He must honor all women and damsels and be ready to aid them to the limit of his power. He must hear, when possible, the mass every day and must fast every Friday in remembrance of Christ's passion. End quote. For those who are curious, Hugh was actually ransomed by Saladin. His mother paid for his release. Less than three years later, he would fight against Saladin for a second time, leading the forces of the Frankish kingdom of Jerusalem and winning, though it wasn't a decisive victory, as many of you might have guessed. In his book, Dr. Keene looks at chivalry from both the religious origins and the secular origins. But I want to reframe things a little and explore a theory of chivalry's practical and social benefits. If a society wants to be organized and have a warrior class, that warrior class must have rules that they will follow, or else the king or emperor will risk this warrior class either becoming too powerful, especially a weak king, i.e. King John with his barons, or Henry III with his brother-in-law Simon de Montfort, or this warrior class abusing their power from the top down, as we saw during the anarchy, when the strong attacked those weaker than them frequently. Chivalry became a control mechanism, a way of establishing social mores and expectations while making those guided by the rules willing participants. We know that social ethics and expectations or laws are produced as part of being a social species. Humans can't survive on our own, but groups can become powerful and ignore those laws or expectations. 
while this episode is focused on French, Norman, and even English codes of conduct, it's important to remember that other feudal societies developed their own rules to control their warrior class. And some of those even had more centralized leadership than any Western European king at this period. Looking at you, Japan, I think I'll come visit you soon. By allying these expectations with the idea that following them made you the best knight, it would be easier for knights to follow the rules established for their class. Remember, other cultures had feudalism and needed to have control over their warriors. Chivalry wasn't universal, but codes of conduct were common. Even today, our warriors, our armed forces as we call them, have rules, these being written, to mold their behavior. Having had friends, lots of them, who have attended military universities, I can tell you they study ethics and ethical theory at a level that wouldn't look unfamiliar to philosophy students at non-martial universities. An illustrative example of this from the time period we're looking at would be Edward III's treatment of Geoffrey de Charnay after the Battle of Calais. You may remember this from the Black Prince's episodes. De Charnay had been tasked by Philip VI to retake Calais and had attempted to do so by bribing one of the men who held a key to the gates during a truce. The man had double-crossed de Charnay and informed Edward III, who went to shore up the issue in person with his oldest son. De Charnay, by attempting to attack during a truce, had broken the code of chivalry, and Edward III, usually a chivalric man, treated him poorly. Interestingly, one of the most famous books about chivalry, literally the Book of Chivalry, is attributed to de Charnay. New evidence published in 2021, though, shows that it was likely written by his son, who shares the same name. Prior to this, de Charnay had been considered a literal paragon of knightly virtue and was well-respected, not just by the French, but by knights all over Europe. Even after his ransom was paid by King John II of France, no less, de Charnay showed himself to hold chivalric attitudes. He didn't burn the castle of the double agent from Calais. Instead, he captured him and had him executed as a traitor, which, according to French custom at the time, he was for breaking his oath. In addition, de Charnay was considered a worthy knight until the end. He died at the Battle of Poitiers while holding the French or aflame, that good old flag of no quarter. The church obviously played a role in the development of chivalry. While they didn't create the ideal, they did plenty to enforce it, and through the Crusades helped with the development of chivalry. While the stirrup was the fundamental founding technology of chivalry, the church's decision to go to the Holy Land may be chivalry's foundational moment. It led to tens of thousands of like-minded knights mingling. While most uh, were of French origin, there were English, German, Italian, and even Byzantine knights. This also wasn't a time of centralized governments. A Norman wouldn't have considered himself French any more than a Navarrese would. The First Crusade, the one discussed in Robert Curtos's episodes, was called for in 1095 at the Council of Clermont by Pope Urban II. 
It was originally called to defend Constantinople from the Turks, but eventually evolved to become a war to take the Holy Land, Jerusalem, and the surrounding area from the Muslim occupants. Dr. Keane points out that it's interesting that the church maintained control over crowning rulers, but never managed to gain control over the knighting of soldiers. I find this connects well with the idea of social control of the warrior caste. Secular leaders could ill afford allowing the church to control this, as it would have taken some of the control of those with arms away from the king, who relied on the loyalty of their armed nobility. We've seen through various subjects that the disagreement between the church and the state can lead to ongoing conflicts. Just a few examples all around the Empress Matilda, her first husband, Henry V, and the Pope in Rome, and then her father, Henry I of England, and the church in England. So, was chivalry a real thing? By this I mean the way we think about it today. Yes, but also no. According to Dr. Keene, as he says in his book, quote, of course chivalry never had a defined rule, in the sense that the monastic orders of the Templars did, end quote. So in the sense that it was a written code, no, but it was definitely real and had meaning for those who followed it. Much of the ideals had to do with the general oaths that knights took at the time of their dubbing. If you remember back to the second story of becoming a knight that shared between Hugh and Saladin. A knight must not bear false witness or act treasonously. He must treat women honorably. He must attend mass daily and he must fast on Fridays. But there's a difference between being a knight and chivalry. Being a knight was a rank or title given often to a young man when he came of age, if he were of the noble classes, or an older man after a great act of valor in battle. Chivalry, though, was the agreement that these men made with each other, with their leaders, and with those that they were theoretically protecting. A man wouldn't be prosecuted for not following these guidelines, well, except by the church, but he could be banished, ostracized, or treated poorly for breaking these rules. What we see as feudalism falls is that there's a change from this gentleman's agreement to actual laws governing the behavior of the martial classes. This change means that men were no longer held to the whims of their superior or peers, at least in theory, but held to the judicial rules that all others were held to. Thank you for joining me for the first half of this Not So Many series. I would like to welcome my newest patrons, Cody and Erin. Thank you both so much for joining us. Also, I have set up an affiliate page with bookshop.org. This is a great way to support the show, and it helps me to be able to get more episodes out for you. If you buy books using my link, I'll receive a small payment. You won't pay any extra, and we'll be supporting a bookstore that isn't Amazon.com. Yes! You can find the link on the show's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as the Patreon page. I'm putting a post up for you guys. I am attempting to find an Australian bookshop with an affiliate program. If you do have a chance, take a moment and review this podcast on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcasting app and let your friends know about this show. It would mean a great deal to me.
When I return next year, I'll go through the politics on the continent, including the War of Breton Succession, the French claimants who never became king, the Black Death, before moving on to the Wars of the Roses, starting with Richard of York. Patrons will start the year with a special episode about Charles of Navarre, before I get to special episodes about Joan of Arc and Henry V. I'll be taking a break until the fourth week of January. I need some time to write and record and get a little bit of head. And I think we should all try and rest and enjoy the holiday season. I hope you enjoy whatever you celebrate this time of year and get to spend time with the people you love. I look forward to hearing from you all in the new year. Please join me then. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod.